How long is long enough? This week on Download This Show, Facebook have decided to keep the former US President Trump off their platform for, well, years. But what are the wider ramifications of that? Also, what do you actually get when you sign up for Twitter's new paid-for service, Twitter Blue? Turns out, not a great deal. Plus, we have some Apple news, and would you play video games on Netflix? Is that the right move for the video streamer? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download the Show and our guest this week, Dr. Emily Vandenagel, lecturer in social media from Monash University. Welcome back to Download the Show. Thanks so much for having me. How's lockdown going? So great. Love it. Nope, that's a lie. <laughs> Hate it. You're a terrible liar is what I learned then. Uh, alongside uh, Dr. Emily is Peter Marks from Access Informatics and how is your lockdown going? Oh, similar to Emily, uh, but uh, yeah, we're getting used to it. We're getting used to it. All right. There is lots more to work through on the show this week. Let's start with Netflix. Uh, Netflix reportedly have plans to push into video games, Emily. What exactly are they talking about doing? Netflix, interestingly, in 2019 listed their biggest competitors, not as Disney Plus or any other streaming service, but as Fortnite. So they clearly have an idea that video games is something that they'd like to move into. And so recently Netflix has announced that they are going to try to make their platform a platform for TV, movies and video games. Right. Now, the thing with this, Peter, is that they're entering a pretty competitive space. I mean, and they're they're coming from behind in many ways, I would assume, Peter. Yeah, well, you would think so, although Microsoft, Sony and Google all have uh, game subscription services that haven't done that well. Uh, So, you know, Netflix has got 200 million, I think, subscribers for their video service and uh, Microsoft, I think, has a, a tenth of that. So there's an opportunity there. But of course, Uh, Netflix doesn't have a box. They don't have a games machine. So the big question is, how on earth are they going to do it? They had a bit of a go with the Black Mirror Bandersnatch Mm. episode, which was a slightly interactive TV show. But it didn't work very well for me because you had to use your TV remote control to try and control the action. And so there's a few gaps there. How they're going to do it, I guess they're going to use streaming technology, game streaming, which is something Google experimented with, I think, rather unsuccessfully. But, of course, Netflix is very good at streaming. They've got the server capacity. They've got the knowledge there to do it. And their platform, I guess, could be expanded to be a streaming game client. The big question in my mind is what are they going to do for the game controller? They'll have to either support third-party controllers or bring out their own controller, perhaps. Yeah, I guess it really comes down to your definition of a game. When we talk about them stepping into gaming, Emily, it kind of feels like there's a there's a range of things that could constitute gaming and it isn't necessarily your sort of triple A shoot 'em up sort of comparison, is it? Well, it's interesting. Are they actually going to be making their own games or distributing and licensing games? Because, you know, I I can see, for example, um, just a, a really cute playing around Hollywood, Bojack Horseman, get into some characters, have adventures. But is that the sort of thing that we're thinking? Are they going to be bringing their Netflix originals into the picture here? Or is this some other way of, you know, accessing titles that people already know and love? Yeah, I mean, I think they've been down this track with video that previously they didn't have any of their own content and they started to be a production house and they've been very successful at it. So they can upskill on that. But games 
are very difficult to develop. They're, you know, typically I think they'd have to acquire game makers who have the skills to do that already. I mean, I think Netflix's big advantage in this is with their 200 million users, they know a lot about us because they know what we watch. They know the whole history of programs that we watched all the way through. So they would be able to recommend games better than anybody because they've got that enormous data set already, that data science they can lean on. So I think they might be better off at recommending games rather than building them. But if history is any guide, they'll probably start by selling other people's games or renting other people's games and then eventually become a producer as well. All right, download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And this week, Apple announced a range of changes to their software. They had their Worldwide Developers Conference, which is the event they do where they announce everything that's changing about their operating systems across you know, watches and iPhones and iPads, as opposed to launching new hardware, so a, a physical new iPad or an, a, a watch. So... Peter, you've been to these events many, many, many times. times. You are my number one Worldwide Developers Conference correspondent. <laughs> Didn't get to go this year, but you did stay up and you watched it. And let's just start with this. What was the number one most interesting thing to you? It would have to be FaceTime, their video conferencing, which has always worked very well, but it's only been on Apple platforms. And what a missed opportunity in 2020 to get their video conferencing across the world. How the hell did Zoom win that game? We had Skype that's been around for a million years and just somehow didn't get any traction. And FaceTime, which works well, I think partially because it's only on Apple platforms, the opportunity was missed. So they announced some new features in FaceTime. One I think that's interesting is spatial audio. So you'll be able to hear the people you're talking to arranged on the stereo stage. And even if you're using the right headphones, as you turn your head, they'll seem to move with it. So I think they're great features and they've got more things for sharing content. But of course, as expected, there's iOS 15, which introduces mindfulness features. Uh, They've got a thing called focus and you'll be able to say, I'm having a rest or I'm working or whatever, and that will control which notifications you get. Notifications has been a big problem or has been a, a big point of criticism for Apple, and they're introducing a notification summary. So when you come back and you've got an overwhelming number of notifications, it will pick out the important ones. They've also announced iPad 15, iPad OS 15, which makes use of some of the power of the new iPad, and it has better multitasking, larger widgets, and an interesting feature where with macOS Monterey, they'll work better together. In fact, you'll be able to share your keyboard and mouse. So if you put the iPad next to your Mac, you'll actually be able to drag the mouse from your Mac across onto the iPad, and you can even do drag and drop both ways. So that's kind of fun. Siri, their speech recognition is moving on to device. So that's always been people's concern, the privacy concern about all these speaking cylinders, is that your voice is being recorded somewhere or going up into the cloud. Mm. Siri will move on device which, as well as being good for privacy, means that it will be faster. So all of these features, uh, including a bunch of improvements to photos and maps, which really feel like catch-ups to Google, they will be, they're available to test now and they'll be available generally in spring, our spring, they always say fall in the US. <laughs> and they'll run everywhere that iOS, the current version, iOS 14 runs. Emily, I just want to jump back to the, the FaceTime stuff there because one of the interesting things they've got there is, is share play where you can share music and movies and TV. Do you think that's something that really should have been done ages ago when it comes to these sorts of platforms, particularly in light of, of the 2020 that everyone's had? 
I feel like it's it makes sense for us to think about it that way. But actually, you know, in, in this culture of move fast and break things, maybe it's um, sometimes better to roll thing, you know, sharing things out a bit more slowly. So, you know, if that's the kind of thing that results from lots of conversations about privacy, we know that Apple is really starting to position itself as the platform to trust when it comes to privacy, which is such a compelling kind of selling point, I think, for them. If the purpose of not being able to share things seamlessly and quickly is that somebody is thinking about the privacy ramifications, maybe that's a better way to go. But look, after the 2020 we've had, and we know that video chat is so important, could it be that they're a little bit behind. Mm. I mean, Peter, there are a few things with that share play thing that I think are fascinating because uh, they've got some third-party apps that will work. So you'll be able to watch in a group things like TikTok, Disney+, Plus, Twitch. Mm. How does that work with logins? Are you allowed to share with something that doesn't have a login? Because I think if you can't, that's a great way of getting people to sample something. Virally getting new signups. Yeah, yes, which is I think that's half the, case. the problem with those walled gardens of, of new streaming services. Yeah, I guess if you want to watch a Netflix movie with a bunch of friends, they will all have to have their own Netflix app that hooks into it. But I think the the interesting feature there is that it will synchronise the viewing. So everyone will laugh together. Everyone will, you know, see the same dramatic moment together. So that's kind of the functionality that's being added over just saying, hey, let's all watch this movie together tonight. So, yeah, you're right. It actually helps the developer. And maybe that's why they're keen to get on board is it will drive subscriptions through people's social network. Emily, we were talking about this earlier and you were saying the part of this you find most interesting is actually what happens after you die, which makes me think you're very morbid, but what exactly were you talking about? (laughs) Look, what I'm talking about here is the digital legacy contact. So for me, this is really interesting because it actually shows us how tightly bound those big tech companies are. Google and Facebook have had ways to access other people's content after they die and now Apple has come up with their own version. This is something that we've been thinking about for a long time, I guess, in the in the internet studies space. And of course, you know, for people who have had to manage this really unfortunate process along with grieving, it can be something that really shows us how privacy matters so much to us, of course, when we're alive and beyond. But there's always a really difficult time for loved ones if a person passes away and you are then in control of their assets and their belongings and their estate. Accessing people's digital information is so hard and it gets even more tricky with things like, you know, fingerprint scanning and face to unlock Mm. and two-factor authentication. Those things are excellent at protecting someone's privacy when they're alive, when they've passed away and all of a sudden it's up to somebody else in their life to manage those digital assets, sometimes they can't access them at all. And um, tech companies have been working on ways to address this for some time now. Mm. I mean, uh, I'm still kind of fascinated about the mechanics of it. Is there a sense of how that actually works? So you can kind of go to them and go, I am the official next of kin 
this is how I prove this person has passed. Is that, do we know that yet? What we know is that you nominate someone in advance. So you go into your Apple account and you say, if I die, then this is the person. It's another Apple ID. So I guess then if Apple gets a contact from that person, they can use all of the authentication mechanisms that Emily mentioned, then they'll be able to say, yes, OK, here's the death certificate or whatever it is. I mean, a good example, in my family, I take all of the photos. And my wife did ask me one day, what happens if you drop dead? I can't get into your picture. So with Google, I've been able to share my pictures with her. And now with Apple, I'll be able to do the same sort of thing. The other thing they announced also is that uh, you can give a secondary person who can recover your account if you forget your password. So if you can't get in, you can't remember your password, you can say, send an authentication code to this person, they'll give it to me and then they'll let me change my password. So they're kind of thinking about the family, the close family network a bit, which I think is great because privacy kind of fights against that stuff. I just think it's so important that along with tech companies that are really invested in providing services to individuals, that we don't forget that individuals are part of networks and groups. And I feel like this becomes so stark when we start to talk about death and how all of a sudden only ever catering to the individual does us a disservice. But there are so many other instances where we actually need to think about our position within groups and networks and families. This touches so many issues. What if you're caring for somebody with dementia? What if you're looking after, you know, like how do you negotiate minors and children? We do have a lot of the time individual devices, individual accounts, but they are always connected to other people in this social context. And the more we recognise that, I think we have the opportunity then to build better technology. You are listening to Download This Show. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We have Dr Emily Vandenagel from Monash University and Peter Marks, app developer with Access Informatics and Twitter have launched a new paid-for service that will allow subscribers to review their tweets before they go live. You can even select colour themes. People have been demanding all kinds of changes to, to Twitter for years. Certainly an edit button has been one that a lot of people have been asking for. Is this the change that people need it? It misses out on a lot of things. <laughs> I would say that no, this is this is not the change that people were looking for, especially because we've been thinking around, you know, what, what might happen if we paid for social media? Would that change our functionality? What kinds of things would it allow us to do? Does Twitter Blue solve these problems? I don't think so. All I've been hearing about it on Twitter itself <laughs> is people messaging back and saying, excuse me, ads? <laughs> Do I seriously still have to look at ads if I pay for a, a Twitter subscription? It really seems like they've missed a lot when mm. they were putting together this idea. So as you say, it is called Twitter Blue. It has been launched in Canada and in Australia in the last seven days. What exactly, Peter, then is the point of Twitter Blue? Well, I guess everyone wants the, you know, how many times have you written a tweet, hit the send button and suddenly seen the typo in it? And of course, there should be an ability to take it back. So they're getting four, Australian uh, $4.49 a month for the ability to have 30 seconds to take back that tweet. Of course, you could always delete the tweet. Some of the other features like colour themes and, uh, and reader mode, these are things that just should be built in. Or remember the good old days when third party apps could use a Twitter API and could do all sorts of crazy things. So I really think they're getting a little bit of money. As you said, we should, if you pay the money, you shouldn't get ads. They haven't done that, which is bizarro, if you ask me. They should go back to having an API for third-party apps and then we'd get that beautiful garden of amazing ideas because different people use Twitter in different ways and I think they should be allowed to do that. 
Who is this actually for, Emily? This is for people who want to get on board with what Twitter can offer in terms of, you know, I, I guess just inhabiting that cultural cachet of being a Twitter subscriber. In some ways, it's translating to a Twitter power user. So I feel like for some people, it means that they can tap into everything that Twitter has to offer. But like Peter was saying, I'm, I'm really wary of a paid version of Twitter that offers any kind of accessibility features, right? Twitter Reader, which makes long threads easier to see and digest, that kind of thing I don't think should be reserved for just people who can pay for it. I feel like what Twitter's doing is separating out people who can afford to pay versus um, people who can't or won't. If it means that paid users don't have to see ads, I understand that because it's a different kind of revenue stream. If it's a way to make Twitter only, you know, more accessible to just the people who could afford it, that doesn't sit well with the way that we'd like Twitter to be a platform for as many people as possible. The thing I'm struggling to wrap my head around, Peter, is like, I, I feel like I'm a person that quite happily pays for things on the internet, right? Probably like more than I should. I need to go like cancel a bunch of subscriptions. And every time I look at the, the functions that Twitter Blue actually offers, I just go, why does this exist? Like, who do you actually think would sign up for this, Peter? Well, I guess uh, a lot of people use Twitter professionally. It's part of their marketing program and uh, they want to have, you know, features like uh, the reader feature. But as I, I, I really think they should just open it up and let third-party commercial apps have, a, have an app developer program because people use Twitter in vastly different ways. So, yeah, it's a bit like the tick. Uh, means you perhaps have somehow more authority, and I guess if you're prepared to pay for Twitter, then maybe you're, um, you know, to be taken more seriously. I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Emily, I guess there's like dedicated customer support, but is there a sense of what you get from that customer support that's any different to what everyone else gets? Aside from exclusivity, which can be a real draw, I mm. guess, for some people, not yet, because there are there are still ways that you can, you know, you can at Twitter or at Twitter support if you need to talk about something and they should be able to get back to you. So I guess, um, you know, the main thing so far is that the Twitter blue account is locked. So you need basically you need to pay the idea is to access it. And I feel like, yeah, if you're somebody who, who really wants to be at the forefront of everything that Twitter can offer, this might be attractive for you. I think that it's a way for Twitter to test the waters. You know, mm. they want to know how many people will opt for this subscription mode and they also want to know how much they can get away with in terms of what they can offer, what they can reserve for their paid uh, subscribers and what features people keep insisting that they need, you know, fewer Nazis, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, an edit button, you know, the ability to, to have more control when you report harassment <laughs> and abuse. These things are important. Yeah. People need to keep saying that they want them and they shouldn't be reserved just for paid customers. So let's talk then, Peter, about what sort of features they could offer that would make you pay. What, what, would, what are you looking for that would make you hand over money to Twitter? <laughs> well, I'd like to be able to not have the ads, an ad-free mm. feed like I do with, uh, with YouTube, for example. I'm not a heavy user of Twitter, but I know that people who are have multiple threads showing side by side on screen, like they'll have a whole screen full of uh, different Twitter conversations going at once. So, you know, for those users, I think they have a different kind of way of using it than, than what someone like me does. I'm not going to pay them. 
I would love the ability to tweet to some lists and not others because I feel like for at the moment Twitter could do a lot more in terms of helping us navigate context collapse or the way that we, you know, people who use Twitter a lot, like me, um, are tweeting to uh, a lot of different people in their life from family, friends, colleagues, etc. So I think that some more kind of options to separate out those contexts would be really helpful. What I would pay for, a Twitter researcher account, the ability, as, as Peter's suggesting with those third-party apps, the ability to make collections of tweets and collect tweets that I can then use in research projects to talk about all kinds of ways that people are using this platform and what meaning that they make from it. And finally here on Download This Show, uh, Donald Trump. There's a name I have, feel like I haven't said consistently <laughs> for some period of time. In the last couple of days, Facebook have announced they will continue to suspend Donald Trump's accounts for two years. That's a fascinating and somewhat arbitrary amount of time, Peter. Why two years? Well, actually, that's a reduction. In January, Trump was banned indefinitely from, uh, from Facebook and Instagram because he had incited the riots that led to the storming of the US Capitol building. He'd violated the rules about deceptive and abusive content. Uh, Nick Clegg, a British media executive and former politician who now is the Vice President for Global Affairs and Communication, spoke about it and said that they've introduced a range of specific penalties and Trump has been given the most severe penalty, which is a two-year ban. So that means after two years he could well be back. Trump and other politicians were kind of given a bit of a free pass to not follow the rules on the basis that what they were saying was newsworthy, even if it was untrue or dangerous or or uh, uh, insightful and uh, you know violent and so on. So they're saying that they're actually going to not do that anymore, that, uh, that politicians will be under the same rules as everyone else. I just feel like there's been so little comeuppance for anything that Trump's done and and that's been a a four-year frustration for so many of us that even this little way that power's being taken away from this man feels like a good thing. But I, I really feel like there's going to have to be some very clear articulations as to what needs to happen at the end of that two years to allow him back. So at the moment, Facebook has said that they will evaluate the markers of civil unrest and risk to public safety in terms of letting him back on the platform. What does that mean? And how might it apply more broadly than Trump as this very high profile case study? Who wins out of this, right? Because there was a period of time where, you know, you were starting to see the rise of let's call them free speech-centric slash ultra-right-wing friendly platforms. Mm. A lot of people were accusing Parler of falling into that category. Are there other platforms that potentially get a win out of this because he could drive his audience over to those places? It's been interesting that the way that Trump has moved off high-profile platforms and into other spaces, those spaces haven't really taken off. Sure, there's been parlor and there there have been some other ways that you know Trump tried to start his own social media platform but they haven't really gone anywhere and that's that's very interesting in terms of what actually makes a platform gain traction so will something like parlor win out of this i'm not sure um it it seems like people are so kind of attached to familiar platforms 
there's such a level of trust in them, I think, at the moment. You know, look, <laughs> that trust gets shaken frequently, but <laughs> it's not enough to drive people completely away from entities that they know, like Facebook and Twitter. So, yeah, is is Trump going to successfully come up with his own platform at last or will he move deliberately to, to parlour and see a huge swelling of users? Maybe, but look, it hasn't happened yet, so this could actually be a marginally successful way to deplatform some of his more radical ideas. What do you think, Peter? Who wins out of this? Well, I think the social media platforms, and I include things like YouTube in this, have done immense harm over the past year, in or past two years now, I guess, in uh, the pandemic by spreading by their algorithms, uh, favouring conspiracy theories and spreading doubt about uh, medical expertise. I and mean, this has actually killed people. Uh, I think that the Trump blog uh, from the desk of Donald, Donald J. Trump was a complete failure, which just goes to show that just being on the internet does not mean you will get an audience. The social media platforms, because their algorithms favour outrage, because they tend to promote things that uh, look like uh, what you're interested in, even though they're not true, they do enormous damage. Actually, I heard an interesting interview with... Um, there's a guy, Robert Caldini, who wrote a book in 1984, published a book in 1984, called Influence, that's about why we buy things, how salespeople work, and he has seven principles, and there's things like reciprocity, you know, if someone gives a doctor, a drug company gives a doctor a small gift, then they'll tend to prescribe that drug. Uh, liking, if you like the salesperson, social proof, if, if everyone's laughing, you laugh, and scarcity. And he made the theory that, or has come up with the idea that um, that conspiracy theories work through some of these mechanisms too. Social media makes it look like everyone agrees with this conspiracy. And because it's a conspiracy, it feels valuable because it's scarce. I'm one of the few in the know. So these are psychological flaws, if you like, that social media plays on. And you know, you can have all the rules in the world. It's it's probably pretty easy for the, the judges in Facebook or, or wherever to say that's abuse. But what about truth? How do you say this is true and this is not true and shouldn't be on the platform? Emily, is it possible that there are unintended consequences to this ban that we need to consider in terms of how it's going to affect other areas of free speech, other leaders around the world? Are there things that I guess you think Facebook and users of Facebook should be mindful of and how decisions like this get applied? Definitely. And and this is why I would really love to see some articulation as to, you know, what, what has to happen before Trump is allowed back on the platform. For Facebook to finally assemble an oversight board was a great move because I think this is Facebook acknowledging that they, you know, that the trust in them is low, right? And they would like it if people trusted them more, if people were confident in the decisions that they make. An oversight board with professionals who care really deeply about this kind of stuff is a great way for them to articulate that trust. That doesn't mean I, sh- I think that we should trust Facebook <laughs> implicitly and um, and think that they're always trying to have our best interests at heart. They have profit at heart. We know that. But it really sends a strong message when Trump is not allowed to use this platform for two years. And I think that as long as there are 
careful decisions and, and as long as there are checks and balances in terms of how they're going to make those decisions and they're applied to not just Trump but to other people who might be causing civil unrest and inciting violence, then, look, it means something, you know, like th this decision has made people talk about the boundaries of what, you know, what you're allowed to say, not just in the news but on private platforms like Facebook. And if there's an idea that this is not just an anything goes and there's not special treatment for people in power, then maybe we can have more of those conversations going forward. I worry about unintended consequences. Uh, a review process is going to require people to do that work and it will take time. There'll be a queue of, of uh, reported posts. And of course, what a gang can do is they can say, hey, let's all complain about this view that we don't like. And that will clog up the system really easily and will lead to people being taken off, you know, who, who really shouldn't be. So it could be used for evil as well as good. Well, it wouldn't be an end of Download the Show if we didn't talk about something concerning about Facebook. So you can now drink. That is all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Peter Marks, app developer with Access Informatics. Thank you so much for coming back on Download the Show. Good to see you, Mark. And Dr Emily Vandenagel from Monash University, lecturer in social media. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mark. And with that, I shall leave you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Download the Show. We'll catch you next week.